Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. What I hope the book might do is tell some of the true human stories of the amazing people, both uh, Palestinians and Israelis, who are striving for peace and justice and equality in the Holy Land. And that it will also give a sense of the journey of some of us in the international community who have moved ourselves out of our lives, out of our normal comfort zone, if you like, to stand alongside uh, the Palestinian people um, in the Holy Land, in their struggle for equal rights. Ordinary people, just like the readers, that I hope will feel a bit closer to that far-off land and that far-off conflict uh, and feel that they could they could get involved, they could befriend uh, these people far away uh, and get involved because ultimately uh, uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It is difficult to explain how visceral is the need to recover the bodies of loved ones lost in tragic accidents or violence. The primal need to put an end to uncertainty and fulfil the painful but essential ritual of burial, mourning, honouring, saying goodbye. The emotive words of British writer, playwright and human rights activist Justin Butcher from his compelling new book, Walking to Jerusalem, published by Hodder. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is hope and how is it experienced? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with British writer and human rights advocate Justin Butcher, whose new book, Walking to Jerusalem, has just been published by Hodder, where Justin writes, The Israeli law of return entitles anyone, anywhere in the world, who can adduce one Jewish grandparent to an Israeli passport along with their spouse, on the basis of the Jewish claim to the land from biblical times. While the universal right of return of refugees, enshrined in the 1948 UN Declaration of Human Rights, has yet to be extended to exiled Palestinians who lost their homes. Justin goes on to state that no act born of hope is ever pointless. I believe in the economy of God. Who knows in the end what facts on the ground our journey will change? Whether the reverberations of so many footsteps will be finally heard? Whether mainstream media or the official histories bother to record what we did? Palestinians will remember us. A motley band of pilgrims who chose to imagine a better world, a new Jerusalem and walk towards it. So what made over 60 people from all around the world walk 2,000 miles over 147 days, crossing 11 countries and three seas? Well, hello, Sue. Um, My name's Justin Butcher, (laughs) and um, I'm a writer, I'm an actor, I'm a musician, uh, producer. Um, And uh, over the last sort of 10 years or so, I've done a lot of work in what I would call kind of uh, creative advocacy uh, in human rights for um, a charity called the Amos Trust, which works in Nicaragua, South Africa, Tanzania, Palestine, and India. And I'm particularly involved with their work in Palestine, in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. Um, And uh, I'm going to be talking about my book, Walking to Jerusalem, Um, And this um, tells the story of uh, a pilgrimage 
which I organized with Amos Trust from London to Jerusalem last year, 2017. Um, and uh, this was a year of three big anniversaries in the Palestinian struggle. It was the 10th year of the blockade of Gaza, the 50th year of the occupation, and the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. So to mark these three huge anniversaries, I came up with the idea of a, a massive walk, <laughs> a big crazy pilgrimage from London all the way to Jerusalem in solidarity with Palestinian rights and calling for full equal rights for everyone in the Holy Land. Really well done on the book, Justin. I have to say it was a powerful read, um, hugely humbling, very emotional in parts, very troubling in other parts and wonderfully stimulating in other parts. But I might throw you um, a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. When I say the word solidarity, what do you think of? What do you automatically think of? Where do you go? What does it all mean to you? Well, it really takes me right back to a moment which I regard as the sort of the incitement for this huge walk, <laughs> um, which was in June 2014. I was uh, in the West Bank, staying in Bethlehem with my friends from Amos Trust, and we were attending uh, a festival, the Bethlehem Live Festival, with a group of British artists visiting and supporting this Palestinian arts festival. And at that time, the, the, the festival and, and our visit coincided with a crisis in the West Bank where three Israeli teenage settlers had been um, kidnapped, uh, disappeared anyway, as far as anyone knew at the time. Uh, it transpired later, kidnapped and, and murdered. But um, at the time that we were there, um, we were seeing the first spate of collective punishment being handed out up and down the West Bank by the Israeli military. Um, and it was the most bizarre set of experiences because in the evening we were attending events at this festival in the old city of Bethlehem with the streets beautifully lit up and hundreds of people out on the streets and concerts and art exhibitions and food and children's puppet theater and this sort of thing going on, a really vibrant fantastic celebration of Palestinian culture and life. And during the daytimes, we were going out to visit uh, different communities uh, around the Bethlehem uh, area uh, and down to Hebron and up to Nablus and Janine and so on, and, and seeing firsthand the impact of this huge spate of collective punishment, which was being handed out uh, as a reprisal for the disappearance of these three teenagers. So there were refugee camps being uh, invaded and tear-gassed, uh, the UN offices of refugee camps being ransacked, um, uh, house demolitions, mass arrests, uh, police and army firing on crowds, um, rubber bullets, but also with live ammunition. And by the end of that week, five Palestinian children had been shot dead. Uh, by the Israeli military uh, and hundreds wounded uh, and, and hundreds of arrests, all in the name of a, a kind of police action to try and find these missing teenagers. And, and one of the places we visited was a village called Al-Qaeda uh, near Bethlehem. Um, Al-Qaeda in Arabic is their name for St. George, the green man. <laughs> and he's a figure who's kind of revered in, in Islam uh, in the Middle East, but obviously in Christianity, he's revered as a martyr, um, a, a native of Palestine who was a Roman soldier who refused to take part in the persecution of 
Christians under the Emperor Diocletian and then and then was martyred for his faith. Um, but there's even a tradition, a history of, of Jews uh, praying to Al-Qaeda um, at certain shrines uh, in Israel-Palestine. Um, and there's even a, a sort of figure identified with him in the Hindu uh, kind of tradition. So he's a very interesting character. Anyway, the legend goes that St. George was imprisoned in the, this village, uh, you know, leading up to his martyrdom. We were there visiting a family whose house had been demolished a couple of days before. Um, and um, Ali Salim Musa was the farmer, and, uh, and he welcomed us, um, and uh, his sons were there pulling chairs out of the rubble to seat us in the shade of their fig tree. It was quite a large group of us had come to visit, and they were pulling chairs out of the rubble of their home to seat us beneath this fig tree, and they insisted that we all would sit down. They wouldn't allow any of us to stand. And he said to us, and our guide was translating for us, he said, uh, in every home in Palestine, uh, after these 50 years of occupation, we receive a lot of suffering in our lives. He says, every house, every home, every family is affected. Uh, you'll find someone martyred, someone in prison, someone wounded, uh, houses demolished. Every, every family is affected. And he said, uh, and we receive all this suffering in our lives because we do one big mistake. We stay in our land. And, uh, and he said, this is the fourth time they've demolished my house. But I'm here for generations. My grandfather and my great-grandfather were here. This is our land. Even if they drive over me with a tank, we will not be moved. And, um, and he said, I teach my children to grow up and be, have respect for everyone in, 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 this, in this world. But they are teaching my children to hate. We asked the military commander, what wrong have, have we done? And he said, well, this is against the security of Israel. He said, what kind of mistake have these children made going to school in the morning and coming home to find their, home, their house demolished? And... Um, and he said to us, please, please, we request the, the nations of Europe, the nations of the world, to do something, to put some kind of pressure on Israel's government to stop this humiliation and cruelty against us. And um, we were very, very deeply affected by this uh, experience. And, and we said to Ali Salim and his family that, you know, our hearts are broken for you. We know that your voice is silenced, but we promise to use our voices to tell your story. Um, and that's what I understand by solidarity. And really, I suppose, since that visit in June 2014, in one way or another, that's what I've been trying to do. I've tried to use my voice as a, as a writer, performer, producer, activist, um, to... Um, to sort of hold up the, the, the Palestinian story, to, to share some of the reality, some of the human stories about the people that I've met with, with, with an audience in, in the West. And that's really where the uh, idea for this, this walk of solidarity came, 
came from. Justin, in your introductions to the uh, to the book, you quote a Palestinian uh, peace activist who said something on the lines to you that there is no hope without risk. And I thought that was a very interesting way to look at the world, to look at all the different, I suppose, actions that we take out and through our lives. And it got me thinking that, you know, in one way, the walk itself, you were taking in a lot of risks. The writing of the book, you're taking in a lot of risks. Because some people could, for a range of different reasons, see some of what you're doing as anti-Jewish and yeah. or see that you're, you know, have a certain political agenda. So in the writing of, uh, of the book, were you very conscious of that? Well, I think that risk... <laughs> The, the idea of, of hope and risk is there, yes, absolutely all the way through. All the way through in the kind of planning and the conception and the planning of the project and then in the walk itself, gathering you know, all the participants together, the walkers, the, 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 the volunteer drivers of the support vehicles, planning the routes, booking the accommodation. Every stage of the game, there was a risk. Sharing the idea of the project with our, our partners in, in the West Bank. What if they didn't like it? What if they might think, oh, this is great. It's a bunch of Brits out on a jaunt. Great. What's that doing for us? Um, uh, planning a whole sort of schedule of activities uh, with uh, our partner organizations in the West Bank uh, for when we arrived. And, and so the, everything was fraught with risk. It was a a mad adventure, a hundred or so walkers walking across Europe and the Middle East um, in, in solidarity with, with Palestinian rights, calling for equal rights in the Holy Land. Even the risk that we wouldn't get in. We came through Jordan across the Allenby Bridge, King Hussein Crossing. and There's tremendous fear uh, in the approach to that crossing uh, of, of whether we would all be you know, turfed out of the... Uh, out of the crossing, the, the, the border crossing, and back into Jordan by the Israeli border authorities. Uh, at one point, the idea occurred to me, thinking, what's the worst that could happen? You know, be arrested and deported, maybe, maybe a grueling interrogation. And then I thought, oh no, what if they take my journal? You know, <laughs> because I'm writing this damn book, you know, and hundreds of scrawled pages, handwritten notes, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, there were risks all the way along. What if, what if um, someone fell ill on the walk? Wild dogs in Greece and Turkey. <laughs> um, uh, and of course, the, the, the experiences in the West Bank as well. One is constantly aware of, of the, 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 the surveillance and the presence of a, of a military occupation, uh, often a quite hostile presence of, of settlers, um, the book describes, uh, you know, a, a angry or almost violent confrontation with, with settlers in, in Hebron, um, being tear gassed at a demonstration in Bethlehem, my 16-year-old daughter with me. Um, and I suppose, yes, I mean, the political dimension, as you mentioned, Sue, you know, that, that it's the single most hot potato, I suppose, uh, in global politics the Israel-Palestine question, the most grievously, vexatiously debated uh, and divisive question. And anyone who takes a stand uh, on behalf of Palestinian rights will be <laughs> targeted or, 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 or maligned by, by, by some voices as, um, 
as doing or saying something which is anti-Semitic. Uh, it's very important to us as an organization, Amos Trust, that we work with Jewish and Israeli partners on the ground in Israel-Palestine as well. For example, Jeff Halper, his director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, um, or I'm thinking of another guy, Ben Yeager, with the UK representative for combatants for peace. This is former Israeli soldiers who are coming together with former Palestinian militants to share their stories uh, and bond together, forging friendships uh, in, in, in a sort of struggle for non-violent change. Um, we work in the UK with Jews for Justice for Palestinians, and, and over this last year or so, Amos Trust has... Um, appointed uh, its first Jewish trustee, Robert Cohen, a former BBC commentator uh, and a writer and, and blogger on Israel-Palestine. And Robert's written the foreword to my book. So the, the land, as, as, as the book explores, is, is very much the land of three faiths, the three Abrahamic faiths, uh, Judaism, um, Islam, and Christianity. And, and there is no future for the land uh, in which the three faiths will not not live together. That that is the future of the land, um, uh, and it's so it's 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 and and and, and my my firm conviction is that the 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 struggles and um, uh, and tragic sort of tensions of of Israel Palestine are political, not cultural. Uh, that 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 time and again over the centuries, Jews, Christians, and Muslims have demonstrated that they're more than capable of living together uh, and sharing far more in common than they have, uh, which divides them. But yeah, a risk. I mean, it's, it's all there running all the way through. And I'm quite open in the book about, about my crazy fears. You know? <laughs> I see there was a demonstration, huge demonstration in Ramallah on the uh, day of the Balfour centenary. And I got it absolutely fixated in my head that um, I was going to be assassinated. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, as one of the leaders of this project, and I'd been on television interviews all through that week, uh, my face was all over it. And I got this kind of crazy thought in my head, oh, well, you know, this is it, the climax of the whole thing, the, the centenary of the Balfour Declaration in Ramallah. I'll definitely be targeted by a sniper. And... Uh, and I, I kind of knew it was crazy when I was having that mad, fantastical fear, and I and I knew it was crazy afterwards. But but I, I thought it is important to be truthful about writing about this that the the, the the phantoms that that can be conjured in the mind in that kind of intense sort of febrile atmosphere, um, or driving at night in the West Bank, being you know absolutely terrified by soldiers and checkpoints and, and thinking, oh, everyone's out to. They know they're all looking for me, <laughs> this sort of thing. So, and I think that that idea about hope and risk is so, so much at the heart of this that all the parties in this cultural environment uh, face tremendous risks in, in moving away from what is the familiar, from the familiar intractable uh, uh, lines of the conflict uh, and, and reaching out to build dialogue and to start to build some trust and, and, and friendship and, 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 uh, and so on. Um, 
and opening oneself in that way, <laughs> either on a personal level, you know, in our lives, in our in our personal relationships, or or sort of collectively, culturally, politically, opening ourselves in that way to to reach out to the other, to reach across the lines of um, um, in, in, intractable feud and, and, and uh, bitterness and so on is, is tremendously risky uh, and opens one up to, to the possibility of being hurt, disappointed, rejected, betrayed. Uh, but it's also the, the path to new life. Over six of you um, uh, took part in the walk. I think you covered about <laughs> just under 2,000 miles over 147 days, 11 countries and, as you say, three seas. And what I found so interesting, Justin, was reading about the backstory to a lot of the different walkers. Um, I think David was a remarkable man. There was Jude. Um, she had recently lost her husband. She was retired. She had cared for her husband while he died and she wanted to take part. Mary, uh, Robin, Vanessa, so many different interesting people and you know they all had ideas about the walk they all came in solidarity and support you started um, every morning with a reflection or a meditation on something but it was so interesting how you moved their stories and their stories of suffering and challenges that they went in their own lives through the narrative of the history of the different countries that you walked through and then you linked all of that up with the kind of I suppose the political challenge of Palestine and Israel can you tell me about that well i do my best yeah i mean i was privileged to to be in company with the most extraordinary bunch of pilgrims when you have a, a crazy idea like this let's do that a big mad stunt you know <laughs> this massive crazy difficult gesture of, of solidarity you've no idea whether anyone else is going to join in with it and want to be part of it and <laughs> you know and if they do who will they be well, they all be complete kind of crazy people, you know. And 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 I, it was the most extraordinary uh, gathering of of, of 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 remarkable people that came together uh, from aged eighteen uh, up to seventy, um, from from all walks of life. Um, a number of Australians, which was a surprise. Americans, Maltese, Irish, um, Dutch, <laughs> um, lots of Brits, obviously, uh, and. Um, and people, some of whom, of course, were steeped in the peace and justice activism field, a number of people, for example, that had been on the Ecumenical Accompaniers program. This is organized by the Quakers, the Society of Friends, uh, who train um, ecumenical accompanies. These are human rights uh, observers who go out to uh, live with communities in the West Bank for, for a period of three months uh, and uh, monitor human rights abuses which take place as a result of the occupation. So a number of, of walkers that had, had done that or been involved in other ways um, uh, with, with uh, the Palestinian uh, struggle. Um, and um, there were people who were completely new to it. You mentioned David, for example, uh, one of my best buddies on the walk, fantastic Australian Maltese um, artist, um, and um, extraordinary idealist, and and he was coming quite new to the uh, the, the Israel Palestine story, uh, coming from a place where he he said he wanted, he needed to escape from Australia physically in order to stop working. He'd got to a point in his life where he uh, wanted to 
take a break, think about a, a change of direction, and so on. Um, and um, I was sort of over, overwhelmed with with work uh, designing shops and cafes. Um, and um, and David started this extraordinary charity in Madagascar. Well, I, I should say actually not a charity because he he he's got this idea about that it should be run as a sustainable business, not a charity, but it's all about tree planting in Madagascar. Uh, he and his wife, Heidi, uh, went there on a holiday and, uh, and observed uh, the vast scars in the landscape, these huge, great sort of uh, uh, devastation of, 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 of the ancient forestry of Madagascar due to logging. Um, and so their charity has planted thousands and thousands of trees uh, and creating a business model for Madagascan people to, to make a living uh, through safeguarding uh, the, the, the forests and replanting. An extraordinary man. How do you find time to do that and, and design shops and restaurants in Australia and come away on this walk and do all the things that you're doing? Um, you mentioned Jude, wonderful retired doctor from Perth in Western Australia. And... Um, and Jude celebrated the first anniversary on the walk of having a hip replacement the year before. Uh, and so age 66, climbing the Great St. Bernard Pass over the Alps. We <laughs> there on the, the Hospice of St. Bernard, the, which is this ancient canonry of, of hospitality. has been, been open for a thousand years. And Jude celebrating her one-year anniversary of the hip replacement, age 66. By, by climbing the Alps, which is amazing. Uh, and um, Robin and Naomi from Cambridge in the UK, a software developer and a, and a youth worker who gave up their jobs to do this, so committed to the Palestinian cause. Um, so yes, it's an incredible uh, community of, of, of pilgrims that came together and have remained in touch ever since. And there have been reunions and, and, and this sort of thing. Bringing together an amazing matrix of stories uh, of, of, of their sort of hopes, dreams, their ideals, their efforts their, in, 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 in the realm of peace and justice campaigning. And, um, and bringing everyone, of course, bringing with them the, uh, the doubts and sorrows and, and, and struggles of, of their lives, which I suppose... One seeks to tease open and to and to perhaps unravel in some way through walking. We had a, a kind of liturgy that we would say every morning before setting out together. Um, we'd have a reflection every morning and then say this liturgy, which ended with the the word "ambulando solvitor." It will be solved by walking. Um, Something, I mean, that, that's a whole sort of, in a way, you could write a whole other book about the actual experience physically of walking at the, the, the deep level of meditation and, the, and reflection and the, the calming effect of being in the open air, working your body um, in the open air all day um, and, uh, and the rhythm of walking and, and you know, there's all of that stuff. It's such a present tense experience. Uh, and I try to, obviously capture some of that in the book and convey some of those that sensation of, of astonishing well-being and sort of being at one with, with nature and, and with oneself.
I found your uh, chapter on Albania unbelievably fascinating. And, you know, the, the book moves from France through Italy, a bit of Switzerland. Um, you go down to Greece, cross to Turkey. Um, like you cover a lot of cultural and historical uh, ground in it. And, you know, each country has their own um, demons and their own past. Um, yeah. But um, Albania is such an interesting country. And one of the things that you highlight is that, you know, during um, World War II, um, how the Jews were protected in Albania. Yeah. And it was the only yeah. country in Europe where the population of Jews actually increased. I found that fascinating. Yeah. How do you explain that? Well, I mean... It, it, it's something that they are very proud of, of course, and, and I think numbered among the nations of the righteous in Israel. Um, and Adi, our guide, told us how uh, King Zog of Albania uh, in the 1930s, when the Nazi persecution began, perceived an opportunity because he he saw that the, 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 the Jews who were uh, fleeing Germany were, in the most part, um, highly educated, successful uh, people, either in, in academia or in, in the law or business or the arts or broadcasting or whatever. And, and, and he wanted to offer uh, a home to this intelligentsia uh, in order to sort of promote and build up the economy of Albania. Uh, and so he offered passports to everyone. And, uh, and in some cases... Uh, I, I, as I understand it, uh, Jews fleeing Germany who, who, who were able to, to gain uh, visas or, or a passport to Albania would then subsequently go off somewhere, you know, onto a further destination beyond. But, but uh, yes, the, the population, it was a very small Jewish population before the war of, of, of 200 or so grew to several thousands. And uh, in the first instance, the Albanians were occupied by the Italians, uh, and they did a kind of a deal, sort of where they said, you know, we'll, you know, we will keep the machinery of government running under your occupation, uh, a, a sort of like a Vichy, a Vichy regime. But the deal is, we, we're not handing over anyone to you. They meant uh, particularly that they're Jewish citizens, and the Italians sort of turned a blind eye at that. Later, after Mussolini's regime collapsed and the German occupation followed, the Albanians hid their Jewish citizens, uh, usually in the countryside, disguised them as, as peasants, hid them in the small villages, uh, mountain villages um, and, and barns and, and, and so on, um, and, um, and protected them. And Adi talked about this idea of kanun. They, they have a, a kind of code of hospitality, kanun, um, a sort of code, uh, which means that, you know, in Balkan culture, this concept of hospitality runs very, very deep, that you, you almost give your life uh, to, to protect your, your guest. Um, uh, and that's a code of honor running, running back for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and so, um, yes, the, the Jewish population increased in, in, in the Balkans. In, in Albania, where it was 
where it was decimated everywhere else across Europe. I was very interested to read about um, some of the aspects of French history that you um, uh, bring up in the book and you look particularly about monastic movements in French history and you go into a lot of detail on that. But you did go through uh, some of the World War uh, World War One uh, war memorials and you mentioned your, um, I think it was your great uncle Clarence. And That's he, right, he yeah. had died in uh, World War One. You must have found that very interesting um, to go to the place for where the Battle of Arras was and to kind of walk, I suppose, also in solidarity with your family's history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it was a very weird turn of events because, you know, at home, my mother's house, there is a one of these old photographs of my great uncle Clarence uh, looking about 12 years old in an officer's uniform. And it says Clarence, Lieutenant Clarence Butcher, 1916. And I was kind of, I got it in the in my head that he died in the Somme because it said 1916 on the photograph. And then the night that we arrived in Arras, walking down into the World War One battlefields, um, I had this very strange dream where it was essentially, it was almost, you imagine a kind of Pieta image. It was... It was me sitting uh, sort of cross-legged and cradling my father in my lap. And I describe how, you know, in, in, in life, my dad was a, a, a strong, vigorous, outdoors man. He was a farmer and a gardener. He was also a wonderful artist and a, and a man of letters. And, um, and it describes also the tragic accident in which I lost my father and brother uh, uh, 30 years ago um, in in. Cornwall. Uh, three of us were fishing together off the north coast of Cornwall and they were drowned um, and I was the survivor and so the book touches on that. But in this dream I am sort of cradling my father in my lap and 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 it's like he, this strong man uh, as it, it finally breaks open with grief and he's weeping and his grief sort of flows into me and and it's a, like a catalogue of grief, a, a, a litany of grief, almost stretching back over a hundred years. The death of his of his uncle uh, in World War One, the death of an infant brother uh, who died in, in in the first few weeks of infancy. There are so many tragedies in my family, uh, uh, generation after generation. My father's older brother John, he was home from leave on the RAF. In World War Two, uh, in the Blitz, and and a bomb hit the house. His wife was killed outright, and their baby daughter was flung in her cot out of the window into the garden, and miraculously found in the rubble, completely unhurt. Um, that's my cousin Jenny. She lives in Dublin, actually, um, and um, and a whole series of of, of extraordinary stories and tragedies going over a hundred years. And there it all was in this dream. And it was like that this great sort of reservoir of grief was unleashed and that it was flowing from my father in, in, into me. And I was there holding him and holding it all. Anyway, I woke up and then suddenly the thought hit me. Was it here? I wonder if it was here. And I Googled the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and I looked up Clarence Butcher and it said May 1917, so it was exactly 100 years before. Arras, yes, it was here. And I thought, I thought I got that wrong. I'm sure it was the Somme. So then I'm emailing my cousin, 
David, who's the fount of all knowledge on family law, uh, and checking with him. And he said, yes, yes, you're there. He, he said, our uncle, our great uncle, died exa- almost exactly 100 years ago, May 1917. And there you are in Arras. It's fantastic. You can visit. And he said, I understand his body was never recovered. So his name is on the memorial wall. And, uh, and he sent me a Google book PDF of the history of the, the war history of the 4th Battalion of the London, London Regiment, which described the details of the Battle of Arras. Um, and around the, the, the time uh, when, when my great-uncle died, and, 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 and I got a vivid picture of the offensive in which, in which he died, where essentially they set the... It was a long advance, the Battle of Arras. It was a big, a big push with a large bombardment, and the idea, of course, was to, to try and gain some, some ground, some kind of a breakthrough uh, in the deadlock on the Western Front. Um, and the, the general commanding the offensive was uh, Allenby, Edmund Allenby. Um, and it seemed that, uh, in the account, it said, it seemed that zero hour was set too early. So you can imagine battalions of men, uh, or, or, or platoons of men, uh, rather, lined up along the, the front line of the trenches, and they were meant to pass a visual signal to each other. Uh, down the line, so that each unit could go up together, where they could all synchronize, uh, climbing up uh, to begin the advance across no man's land, um, uh, and um, and they couldn't see, they couldn't see the signals, and so what happened was that each unit moved up, and then there was a delay, and then the next one, seeing that they'd gone, moved up, and then the next one, so on and so on, down the line, like a, a row of dominoes, which meant that all the German firepower could be concentrated on one unit at a time, and that meant that the officers leading out those groups of men were particularly vulnerable and were just slaughtered. They couldn't see what they were doing. And I tried to imagine my great-uncle, age 17, squinting through the darkness, trying to see a signal with the hellish noise of bombardment going on all around, um, and then blowing his whistle and leading his men up the ladders out onto the battlefield. And the memorial says, the, the, the scroll of honor that was sent to my, to my uh, great-grandparents says that he was 19 years old. The family, sort of, my, my grandfather was quite adamant that that's, that's wrong, that he was 17. So he lied about his age um, uh, and, um, and that he was no more than 17 when he was killed. Uh, so it was, it was an extraordinary coming together of my own story <laughs> with the bigger story of the walk because after the, the huge casualties at Arras, it did secure the longest advance in trench warfare history up until that point, but with enormous casualties. And, and General Allenby was recalled to London and removed from, from the command of the, of the Third Army. Um, and after that was sent out to Egypt to take over the, the war in the Middle East. And his next challenge was to be the conquest of Palestine. And so Allenby was the general, the British general, who, who led the, the British conquest of Palestine, which led to everything that followed. And, uh, and this moment at Arras, with a hundred years 
you know, since the, the death of my great uncle, a hundred years we were walking since the Balfour Declaration and the connection of Allenby and so on, was one of these strange moments where the bigger story touched, you know, my personal story. Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with British actor, writer and human rights activist Justin Butcher about his new book, Walking to Jerusalem, which has just been published by Hodder. I asked Justin about the Balfour Declaration issued by the British government during World War I, which called for the establishment of a national home for Jewish people in Palestine, and whether it could be argued that it's a forgotten history. Well, I think that's right, yeah. Um, I, I describe in the book how astonishing uh, moment where, where I, my, my very, very dear friend Ahmed Massoud, who's Palestinian from from Gaza, and we've worked together on a number of projects in a theatre in the UK. Uh, and in 2011, his mum, Fatma, was able uh, to get a visa to come to uh, come to the UK. Why? Because the border crossing between Gaza and Egypt was open for a brief period under the Morsi government, uh, the change of government in Egypt. Um, and so Fatima had been able to travel to the UK, you know, to meet uh, to meet Ahmed's wife uh, and 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 son, uh, her, her grandson that she'd never met before, uh, and it was an amazing amazing experience. And having them to dinner in my house, uh, and I'd heard so much about her over the over the years, but but never met her. Just thought of her as this almost mythical figure living in this trapped territory so far away. And I was astonished by her vivacity and sort of joie de vivre. And I, and I, and I said to her at one point, uh, how do you cope day to day with the anger you must feel against the Israelis for your, the, 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 the blockade of Gaza, all this, the suffering, the privation that you endure, the loss of your, of your home in 1948, all the suffering, the people killed, the people wounded, how, how do you just cope on a day-to-day level with, with so much wrong, so much injustice? And to my surprise, she kind of grinned, looked at me rather archly, and, and pointed and said, well, the anger goes further back to you and your Balfour Declaration. Uh, and I said to Ahmed, is that right that a lot of Palestinians still think about that, still talk about that? And he said, yes, every Palestinian <laughs> You go to Gaza one day as a Brit, kids will see you on the street. They'll be chanting Balfour, Balfour at you. So for you, it's forgotten history. Forgotten history is way back. For us, it's, we're still living it every day. We're still living with the consequences. Um, and, uh, and that's why the impact of the walk was massive uh, when we arrived in the West Bank. So it's it's impossible to overstate the impact that it had. As I said, we we I always had a question mark in the back of my mind: Would they get it? Would 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 they get it? Would they might just think, well, what, that's nice. They walked a long way. That's was very nice for them, you know. So what? But actually, it touched deeply 
deeply the hearts of many, many, many thousands of people, from every refugee camp to school to Bedouin village to city hall. We were treated like superstars, which was not obviously the <laughs> object of the exercise. What we wanted to do was make a huge, bold, symbolic gesture something really difficult and costly, walking 2,000 miles over five months to Palestine to say sorry for the impact of Britain's policies 100 years ago, to say that we, we know, we acknowledge, we understand that the Balfour Declaration and everything that, which followed it led to 100 years of dispossession, suffering and injustice for the Palestinian people and that we were deeply, deeply sorry. And this, we, and the second element of it, of course, was solidarity, that we were marching in solidarity with Palestinians whose right of return is denied. 10 million Palestinians now living in exile in refugee camps across Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, in the West, in the UK, in America. Um, and the universal right of return of refugees has this one exception, which is the Palestinian people. Robert Cohen, the writer who I mentioned earlier, wrote a blog piece from, um, from Jerusalem uh, on the eve of the Balfour centenary. Uh, and he, he, he mentioned in it, he said, Isn't it, he said, I always find it strange how we Jews <laughs> hold up our law of return, our, our, our make a big thing of that, this, this desire to return to our holy land, but, but Palestinians who lost their homes in 1948, rather more recently, uh, have, have, have still been denied uh, the universal right of return of refugees. And he said, maybe they haven't waited long enough. Maybe they just need to wait another 2,000 years. <laughs> they need to be more patient. Uh, and by then, perhaps their claim will be regarded as, as equal. The third element, I suppose, of the pilgrimage was hope. We've talked about a bit about hope. Well, we, we, we said we're walking in penance, we walk in solidarity, and we're walking in hope that one day all peoples in the Holy Land will live in peace as neighbours with full equal rights. Justin, you met with a former senior administrator to the British government in Palestine who said to you something on the lines of that Britain has more political power than it likes to admit. If Britain were to recognise a Palestinian state and call strongly for an end to the occupation and siege of Gaza, call for Israel to dismantle its illegal settlements, tear down its illegal wall, address the rights of return for Palestinian refugees, call for an end to the theft of water resources, in short, call for equal rights for everyone, in the Holy Land, from the river to the sea. Well, if Britain were to do this, other countries would follow. Now, I know you could throw that to a lot of um, governments throughout the world, but I'm just wondering, what is stopping Britain and the international community? Well, that is, that's absolutely right, Sue, that that, that, um, that is the position of um, the, the person that you mentioned, um, a former British Consul General to the Palestinian territories. Um, and uh, who, who, who strongly supports uh, the recognition of Palestine as a state. Um, and I think Britain has a unique responsibility to do this as the former colonial power in Palestine. We started um, 
meddling with Palestine uh, during the course of the First World War. It was clear that the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, was falling to pieces. And so Britain and France were doing secret deals, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, to carve up the Ottoman territories across the Middle East for their zones of post-war influence. Britain, of course, controlled the Suez Canal uh, in, through Egypt, one of the world's most important uh, trade routes. Uh, and so one of our concerns was to create a friendly buffer state next to Egypt to safeguard our control of the Suez Canal. Um, the first, first uh, British governor, a military governor in Jerusalem, Ronald Storrs, uh, talked about uh, inserting a little loyal Jewish Ulster into a sea of Arab hostility. It's an interesting phrase, um, particularly for Irish listeners. Um, uh, so the concept of creating a friendly client state, uh, you know, uh, through colonization and settlement uh, that would safeguard Britain's interests in the Middle East. Um, I mean, the British Consul General to the Palestinian territories whom we visited on the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, Philip Hall, agreed with a lot of our petition. He said, we do believe that the occupation is illegal, and we do say that. We do believe that the blockade of Gaza is illegal, and we do say that. Um, and, uh, and so the stated position of the British government is to call for an end to the occupation, an end to the blockade of Gaza, um, and um, a return to the 1967 borders. But of course, what does it mean to keep saying that if you are conniving uh, at the facts on the ground. And the, the reality is that since the Oslo Accord of 1994, uh, that, that successive Israeli governments have done everything they can to wreck any prospect of a Palestinian state, building more and more settlements, uh, now a million settlers living in the West Bank, um, building the wall, which annexes huge swathes of Palestinian territory effectively to Israel, uh, and, and carving up the remaining territory on which Palestinians live into a series of Bantu stands separated by checkpoints, walls, razor wire fences, settlements, and, and settler-only roads. So what kind of a state can there actually be? What is the reality? You know, of a, a, a geographically contiguous functioning Palestinian state. More than 80% of the water in the West Bank has been stolen by Israel, diverted either to the settlements or into Israel proper. So the, the water available for Palestinians is less than 20% of their indigenous groundwater supply. Most of the flow, 90% of the flow of the River Jordan through damming uh, has, been, uh, has been lost. So, and Palestinians are not allowed access to the River Jordan in any case. So what kind of a state are we talking about? Um, but it's a useful fiction for Israel, for America, for the international community to keep on talking about the two-state solution. Because if you keep on saying, pretending that it's there, and all we need to do is to find a trusted partner for peace and then get everyone around the table and then we can work it out, then that means you don't have to do anything about alleviating the situation of permanent occupation. Many Palestinians are now of the opinion 
that they should give up their aspiration to statehood, forget it. We don't want a state, thank you very much. We just like to be equal citizens of your country. And uh, paradoxically, of course, that, that's, that could be one of the few things that would drive Israel back to the negotiating table. Uh, if, if, if you prize the concept of a majority Jewish state, uh, but in fact, the reality on the ground is it's one state from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and if you gave equal rights to everyone that lived in that state, it would not be a Jewish majority. Uh, so Israel has to decide what kind of state it wants to be. Does it want to be a democracy? Uh, or, or does it want to be an apartheid state? Because the, the reality on the ground is it is one state. It is one power controlling, controlling that territory between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean. Uh, it's just that half the people who live there don't have rights. with British writer, playwright and human rights activist Justin Butcher. Walking to Jerusalem, Blisters Hope and Other Facts on the Ground is published by Hodder and retails for just under 19 euros in hardback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say thank you for listening and a big shout out to the lovely Chris Bent on Sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to close tonight's broadcast with the inspirational words of American historian, playwright and activist Howard Zinn, who Justin quotes in the book. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. If we were to see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, when people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents, and to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvellous victory. Fine words indeed. Good night. Good night.